Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Plumbing is exciting in the world of small business acquisition. Some of the big names on Twitter have acquired plumbing companies. And so too has my guest today, Charles Barr. So I was excited to talk to Charles to finally learn what is so magical about buying a plumbing business. This was one of those interviews where I immediately went on biz buy sell afterward and started looking at plumbing businesses for sale. It's really cool to hear how excited Charles is to be the new owner of DiMartino Plumbing of South Florida. See for yourself. Here he is, Charles Barr. Charles Barr, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Well, thanks for having me, Will. Excited to talk with you about uh, business and uh have it not be just uh, my friends and family who get to hear me talk about plumbing all the time. Yeah, you're going to find in me somebody more interested in hearing about your plumbing business than probably anybody else that you've talked to in your network. So you have just recently acquired DiMartino Plumbing. Mm-hmm. It's about a, an 11-year-old plumbing business in West Palm Beach, Florida. You're the first plumbing acquisition entrepreneur that I've had on the podcast. And plumbing is kind of a uh, has a lot of appeal for acquisition entrepreneurs. At least that's what I, I read on Twitter. So I'm going to be eager to have you tell us what it is that's special about plumbing. But why don't we start with you, two minutes on you. Tell us, you know, give us your quick professional bio, taking us up to the point where you decided that you wanted to go out and buy a business. Sure. So uh, I went to college in Boston and studied economics, political science at MIT, uh, was exposed to all the tech stuff and uh, decided I kind of after college wanted to go to do tech things and do the startup world and all that and learned how to code, did a bunch of SQL and Python coding, did a startup incubator, um, even worked on a couple of little startups myself in that period, decided to go to business school after a few years of working in industry and was exposed to search funds uh, shortly before business school. And once I left, I moved down to uh, Florida uh, to be closer to my family, South Florida, Miami. And I was still thinking about the search fund, you know, the traditional search fund model. Um, and after working at another company and doing another startup after business school, I decided, hey, I really want to own my own business. And that was uh, about a year and a half ago when I decided I was going to do that. And about a year into my search, I was doing kind of a whole self-funded search and started looking at little companies that I could buy outright. Uh, I discovered plumbing on Twitter and uh, HVAC and the licensed trades, learned mm-hmm. that the, the license wasn't as big of a deal as I thought it was, at least mm-hmm. in Florida, because I could have a qualifier so the owner could stay on, I could get my license in a year. Um, and within about three to four months after looking at plumbing, I found DiMartino and ultimately closed on the transaction. And uh, I'm really excited about plumbing. I think it's a really interesting trade, uh, very important. Amazon's not gonna kill you. The economics yeah. are good. Uh, it's technical. So there, there are a lot of reasons to go for uh, a plumbing company. Well, I want to I dive into those, but let's rewind for just a sec. So you said you, that you had always wanted to own your own company. And you'd also said that it, it sounds like when you were exposed to search funds, that that was kind of what planted the seed, even though you're being exposed, presumably in the tech world to all these other entrepreneurs, kind of tech entrepreneurs. 
as somebody who wanted to own his own business and kind of saw that in your in your own future, why wasn't being a tech entrepreneur um, something that you envisioned for yourself, or why didn't you go that path, or uh, why not start a plumbing company rather than acquire one? So two separate questions. Yeah, both good good, good questions. I'll start with the first one. So I tried uh, the tech entrepreneur uh, thing. So I worked on a startup trying to build a portable low cost MRI, worked on a startup around virtual assistants um, and trying to use machine learning techniques, AI stuff in that um, and played around with you know dozens of other little projects. Uh, and I like that, but I ultimately decided that, you know, in a lot of those fields, for one, you have to be really, really good at raising money um, and you have to be okay with a business that might not be making money in the near term. I didn't love that. Um, Two, I didn't want to be uh, competing against uh, people who are really, really smart, right? Like, I don't want to be competing against the guy from Stanford with a PhD who was in the military and, you know, on the side uh, rescues babies from cardiac arrest, right? So I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm a relatively smart guy, but I don't, why, why do the hard thing? Um, and I was also exposed <laughs> to, uh, to to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and I'm uh a huge fan of those two guys. I read everything that I possibly can about them. And, you know, they were pretty successful in boring, what arguably might be called boring businesses. They're interesting to me. Um, so that's kind of what started pushing me on the path towards um, these businesses that most people don't think about because they're not in the news, they're not sexy, they're not raising millions of funds. Um, but I thought that's perfect because then that means the the price won't be insane, right? Because you know, if you're value investing, person, you know, price is what you pay, value is what you get. Um, and it's also, I just like working in kind of unusual fields for somebody like me. I love telling people like I'm, I'm up in a plumbing business because I was like, what in the world? Like, you know, somebody's yeah. like an attorney, they're like, what, you own a plumbing business? Um, yeah. And your second question, repeat the second question one more time. Why not start a plumbing business from scratch? I, I think that that's um, actually a really good idea compared to the amount of money you might spend just buying a plumbing business. Um, I don't it's think the old, I'm, like, what am I actually getting if I right. buy a plumbing business versus right. you're just not doing it myself? Of, you're usually not getting a bunch of assets. Um, the reason why you buy it is that there's some systems set up, even if it's rudimentary, uh, you have customers, you have a reputation, you're paying a lot of money for that, but you're buying that when you buy the plumbing business. Um, you could start one, right? Um, if you want to start one, you need to find, first off, somebody to qualify the business. You could go probably to plumbingzone.com or one of those sites. And I see people saying like, hey, I want to somebody qualify my business in Florida and I'll pay you uh, $7,000. Um, and then you got to get techs and you have to pay them and, you know, truck and equipment. And you have to pay them maybe while you don't have customers immediately, right? I, I don't, I suppose you could do like an Uber-like model. I've heard this in cleaning companies um, where you start from very little. Um, and that's fine. That's probably more, honestly, if you can pull it off, I, I would just do that. I just don't think that I'm the person who's brilliant at starting companies, but I might might be the person who's who's good at growing them and making them you know, high quality customer service and great places to work. Mm -hmm. So you have these individuals who are licensed, but you yourself have decided to go out and get licensed. Yeah. So, what was that decision about? Is that just to know your business better or to diversify this key man risk that you have in, in the previous seller, all of the above? Tell me about that. 
uh, all all the above. Plus, I just like collecting certifications, right? I got my camp <laughs> yeah. radio certification. I got my EMT. I'm not, you know, it's expired, but I got my EMT certification and, you know, all these other things. It's scuba. It's fun uh, to do. Um, yeah, but yeah, eliminate some of the key man risk, um, you know, by getting my own license. Understand the code a little better. A lot of the the plumbing exam is really about code. Like, I could get my my license and then, you know, I, do I really know that much about plumbing without working in it for five years, you know, uh, pipe wrenching? Uh, no, probably not. But um, it's good, I think, just to get, go through the actual code and understand that really well. Read isometric drawings, right? These like these drawings that you have for like engineering type drawings. So you understand how to install stuff. Um, I think it's all useful. You had mentioned that plumbing and there, there are other trades that are similarly appealing HVAC, mm-hmm. HVAC, electrical. Were you also looking at those companies or, or was, was plumbing, were you solo looking at plumbing? I, I was looking at those uh, companies as well. So I, I took a look at electrical, especially because it seemed like there were a bunch for sale. Uh, one of the reasons, by the way, why I went to look at the trades to begin with was because I thought this industry is highly fragmented. If I'm okay buying at the lower end of the market, like the lower total price, I could probably find something to buy in relatively short order. Um, but I looked at HVAC a lot. Uh, those were very popular. So most of the best businesses, at least based on the teasers I saw, were already under contract. Um, in electrical, I poked around that quite a bit, but I found that it's almost all construction um, in electrical and that, and like not a ton of service, at least what I saw. Um, stuff like electronics for pools or uh, installing uh, lights in like, you know, shopping centers and the, the parking lot, that kind of thing. It has some service component. Um, and I guess it's just because it's solid state, right? Like in plumbing and HVAC, you're talking about fluids moving through pipes and you know machinery and pumps and all that kind of stuff. And that fails. And I think the electrical stuff is uh, maybe less prone to failure and also much more dangerous, you know, compared to, to plumbing where you know, there's, there's danger in plumbing, but often it's more you flood something um, than electrocute yourself. So HVAC was also on the table. You just couldn't find, it was, it was just too competitive as a buyer. Yeah, yeah. And, and plumbing... Plumbing and HVAC, I think, were the two prime ones that I thought were most interesting. And w- one reason was, like, you're talking about all the people on Twitter who are into plumbing. I saw a few other people in HVAC and in plumbing who had been successful buying similarly sized businesses or, or you know, claimed to be successful. And I said, well, I'm not, maybe I shouldn't take a, a risk by doing something that nobody else has done, especially for a first acquisition. So that's why I ended up focusing on, on those two. And these people, uh, John Wilson comes to mind, who acquired yeah. a, a plumbing company big on Twitter. Rich Jordan acquired yeah. a plumbing company that's not even in it, it, it. Apparently, he lives some hours away from the, the business he acquired. Are there any other names that the audience would be interested in following? Uh, I think Nikashka was pretty. I, I, I always forget exactly everyone's particular business, but yeah. like uh, I know Nikashka. Uh, I liked a lot of his stuff on some of the other podcasts he's done. Um, yeah. I mean, there are a bunch. I, I you know, I don't want to plug any other podcasts, but there, there are there are other podcasts out there too. Yeah. Um, that, that sometimes interview the same kind of folks you do. Um, and I would go through the entire list of uh, episodes and just listen to every single one, um, so that I kind of and I would take notes. Like it would take my, my I'd go to the gym and a workout that would take like 
45 minutes would turn to a two and a half hour workout because I'd be pausing and reversing and writing stuff down <laughs> uh, into my notes. And this was all this research that you were doing was to decide on what industry or you just the everything, just everything from the transition to financing it to everything. Industry understanding, I think, was the a thing I cared a lot about because my my search, and I wasn't doing a search fund because I was ultimately just buying a business myself. And I was like, well, maybe I bring outside investors, but I could fund a search myself. I might even just buy the business. Um, because I was geographically restricted, because I knew I wanted to be in South Florida, my theory was I have to be industry agnostic, um, which for that first like 12 months of the search was really tough because I couldn't really evaluate a lot of businesses because I didn't have anything to go off of to compare them to, right? To kind of figure out if they were good or, or bad or, you know, understand the, uh, you know, what I should be looking for in, in the seller or in the financials. I mean, I've, I've heard folks like one kind of mini private equity group told me that uh, industry does not matter because, you know, they've bought uh, companies that they've had no experience in and they did great. And I think it's fine. Um, but, you know, if you're, switching between home healthcare and plastics, uh, plastic packaging manufacturing, it can give you a whiplash. Uh, so th one of the big reasons I listened to these podcasts and did all this research was to really understand industry dynamics and, uh, and be able to evaluate a company in that industry. So you whittled it down from all of the, the, the available buffet of, of industries in the small business SMB world and arrived at plumbing and HVAC. And once you, once you narrowed it down to those two, you kind of educated yourself even more deeply on those industries and looked at a, a lot of deals and specifically those industries to really understand what a good plumbing business, for example, looks like. Exactly. Right. Like it was, um, it was a lot like the, you know, the secretary, they call it sometimes the secretary problem or the marriage problem. I, I think that they might even change the name again because it's a, uh, uh, perceived to be uh, politically incorrect, but it's this mathematics problem. And I think the answer is like E over one, it's like some, N over E, I think, something like that. Uh, so look it up. Um, and the idea is that if you have, uh, if you're looking for uh, an administrative assistant or a secretary uh, or a wife even, and every time you go through, you interview somebody for that position, or I suppose go on a date, um, you can accept or reject them. Um, but once you reject them, you can't go back to them, right? So how do you know when to choose uh, somebody? You know, if you go with the first one, you think this one's great. Like, is that optimal to just choose from the beginning? Um, and, you know, generally in this contrived mathematics kind of problem, it's not. Uh, you have to interview a certain number of people and then uh, choose the next one that's above the mean, I think of that in terms of quality. So yes, I, I went through a bunch of these companies, especially brokered listings, so just a lot available. Um, tried to kind of get a glance. And I was gonna reject probably the first few I saw regardless, because I didn't know enough to make a decision. And then once I felt like I had a little handle on it, I picked the next one that looked really good. And so what did you, what, what looked good about DiMartino? Uh, I like the sellers for one. I think that was a, a pretty important element, right? Um, the sellers, I think, were uh, I think I think they like me. They've said they've they've liked me, and I, I seem to get along with them. Um, the price was fair, uh, which I think is pretty important. I've seen some businesses where you know it's making one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and they wanted five and a half times the cash flow for the business. Um, it had a servicing component. 
that was something you don't see that often uh, because so many of the deals that had servicing components were already under contract or acquired, right? Because everyone wants service. Um, and I bought this business. Can you, can you elaborate that, on what you mean by that? Uh, in terms of what, like what it means to have like service versus construction or? Oh yeah. yeah. So, so, so is, are those the two things that a plumbing company would offer either new construction or service? Is that what, is that essentially? Basically, yeah. I mean, and you can categorize, you can put in different quadrants where you might have four categories, you know, residential service, residential construction, commercial service, commercial construction. Um, but I really want to focus on the residential and I want to focus on service. And when I looked at DiMartino, they had a very strong service component. They had a, a, pretty, a very significant construction component as well. And my thinking was, okay, this has a little nibble of servicing that I could grow. That even if I'm buying just the servicing element, I can take that and optimize it and grow it, even if construction goes down the tubes tomorrow. Now we're, I, we're still doing construction stuff, right? Um, the only thing I'm, I'm we're searching around is trying to wrap up the projects that are ongoing, the bigger projects, and move towards uh, smaller like remodels, um, which I kind of categorize as construction. Uh, where you're not, you don't have to have these long uh, drawn out projects where so much can go wrong and you have a resource allocation problem because, you know, you're, you have to, might have to send four, you know, four teams to the site for five days then wait three weeks for somebody else to do a bunch of work, then come back again um, on these construction jobs. So the, the fact that there was a little service was, I think, the big, the big deal to me. I mean, it's not a little, it's like 50 or 60% of the company, but I think that might be one of the reasons why I was able to get this particular deal. And why did you want residential instead of commercial? I think it's uh, it has to do with how confident I am in my ability to deal with customers. I, if I worked in property management or I did something um, related to commercial, uh, you know, maintenance or real estate, I would be more comfortable in that doing that. But there's some complexities with commercial work uh, that I don't want to embark on, like, or just dealing with property managers, right? Some property managers are rewarded based on, as I understand it, uh, you know, how much money they save. So you might be in a race to the bottom of some property managers. Um, you might have a lot more complexity if you're servicing like a restaurant's plumbing or building a restaurant's plumbing. With residential, you can do, you can have a, a broader customer base. So you have lower con customer concentration um, and you're dealing with uh, people who might want their hand held a little bit versus people who are potentially more sophisticated than you. That said, you know, sure, if you if you are have a bunch of little uh, commercial customers and they're not, you know, plumbing intensive businesses, uh, it might be very similar to working with residential. Uh, but I, I did not really want to go for like the, um, uh, we service a whole shopping mall or have, you know, three property managers we work with, or we have two um, apartment buildings that we do all the work for. That was something that I'm like, I don't know if I could really handle that given my lack of experience. When you said that you were looking for uh, brokered, brokered businesses, does that mean that you were, what did, what did your search look like? Were you just on buy, biz buy sell every night? Were you reaching out to local brokers, all of the above? All the above. I mean, I, I looked at it, all the different brokerage sites, you know, BizQuest, biz buy sell, uh, individual, the, uh, I think BB, BBMLS, there's like a business brokers of Florida MLS. Um, it seemed like no deal was only on one site that the brokers would kind of put on all these sites. 
and I, I spoke to brokers uh, as well and tried to, you know, develop relationships with them. And I developed relationships with a couple of them. I thought that were pretty good. Um, but that's really what it came down to, just aggressively monitoring the sites, asking for, you know, uh, SIMs for, you know, the confidential information memorandums, evaluating it. Uh, and it was just a lot of doing that. I had done a proprietary search early in my search. Um, but the problem with that is you're, talking to a lot of people who are not interested in selling at all. Uh, so my time, I believe, was better spent looking at businesses that were definitely for sale and at the smaller end of the spectrum, because I don't think that there'd be quite the same auction risk as you have with uh, bigger deals, which is why I think a traditional search fund, if you're buying like a, a business for $5 million, you know, you kind of have to do proprietary because anyone listing on a site is going to get bid up because there, there are more the buyers for that will compete with each other uh, for the business. And a proprietary search, just for people who, who haven't heard the phrase yet, just means you're not looking at businesses that are for sale publicly. You're reaching out to owners and saying, hey, I might be interested in buying your business. Do you want to have a conversation and kind of generating your own deal flow? So it, it can be where you find amazing deals, but as you can imagine, you know, for every hundred emails that you send out to, to business owners as just some random guy say, hey, can we talk, saying, hey, can I talk about buying your business? You might only get one response and then a smaller percentage of that actually lead to real conversations, but actually leads to a sale. So it's very laborious and a, and a classic case of numbers games. Um, but if you can do it, it's often where there's a lot of money to be made. Yeah. And, and that the, you know, you got to be clever about it. I was trying to write out letters where I'd handwrite the address and I, you know, sign it and highlight it manually to kind of make it not look so much like a form letter to businesses. I even had, you know, a line that was totally customized to the business. Um, and, you know, that worked, but the amount of labor you put into it was, you know, substantial. And you could have a traditional search fund. If they're doing this proprietary search, they will hire uh, a bunch of interns. They usually didn't pay them, uh, at least in the past. There have been some changes in the rules for unpaid interns. Uh, from the U.S. government, um, and they would have them cold call. Uh, they would have them write letters, or you know, just you know, uh, not wrap the letters. You know, fold the letters, um, and they would handle a lot of that. And in return, those interns would get like private equity type mentorship. The searcher would uh, you know write a recommendation if they want to work somewhere or go to you know graduate school or whatever. Um, and you know, and they're, and they're covering a large area. In general, they're covering like maybe the whole eastern seaboard of the United States. Uh, there's a guy, by the way, Scottish American Capital, I think was his company. Yeah, it's Scottish American Capital. And he wrote up his process, which included putting Scottish candy in the letters, hand franking them. So you have to bring it to the, the actual post office uh, to send them as like kind of a reminder to the business owners. And he'd have a letter that he'd follow up with. So it was a whole just like an email marketing, there was a whole flow. And when he called, he said that, I think it was like, you know, very few people got back to him from just him saying the letters. But when he called after he sent the letters, you know, a good proportion, I think at least 20%, he said, uh, remembered him um, when he was doing his search. And he's got a whole write-up on uh, a guy, Jim Stein Sharp's blog. I think he's a, a Harvard uh, Business School professor. Right. Um, and it's, you know, really good. So I was kind of influenced by that, but I didn't, know of any candy I couldn't send like an empanada from Miami to people <laughs> and 
I suppose I was only searching in Miami, so it, it was uh, it was a little different. Why did you just choose not to do a search fund? Sounds like you started down that path and then reoriented. So why why did you do that? And and what can what can other people out there learn from that decision? Sure, I, I think search funds traditional search funds are great. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, and Charles, I, define yeah. a traditional search fund really uh, concisely, if you can, versus just doing going out there and searching by yourself. Sure. A traditional search fund is a, a specific model invented by a Stanford professor in like the mid eighties uh, that involves a recent MBA raising some money from investors, typically $250,000 uh, and for a one person search fund. And they'll spend the next two years up to the next two years looking for a business to own and operate. And if they find one, uh, they go back to their investors and they say, hey, I found this business. You want to put some more money in? Um, they get some debt. They usually get a seller note and they'll buy the business. And uh, usually they'll sell it within five to seven years. Uh, and that's really all there is to the traditional search fund. It's more or less you're, you're funding. The search itself is funded by investors. So the, the investors take on the risk of maybe you not finding a business. Um, and that's kind of the, the main first, like a self-funded search, all that means is you fund the search itself, you pay the legal bills, you, if you travel, you pay that travel, uh, you, you know, pay your own salary. Um, and once you find a business, everything else is, is very similar uh, versus a traditional search fund. Although I think it, with self-funded, often they're maybe going to do an, they're going to finance the acquisition maybe differently, maybe use more financing, less investors. Search funds typically they're going to get the they're going to finance it from this pool of investors that have already put up the the, the two hundred fifty thousand, uh, and and one common result of that too is that the search fund the search funder ends up looking for a much larger business. Um, so and that's right. part of the reason why the search takes a longer time because there's fewer businesses out there selling that have that are doing three to five million dollars in cash flow than there are businesses doing half a million to a million dollars in cash flow. So the search finding that ideal business takes that much longer. So, and that's, uh, you asked about kind of how I came to this, you know, why I came to do a self-funded search kind of thing and uh, why, you know, how I ended up on this path and why I decided not to do a traditional search fund. So when I graduated from business school a couple of years ago, I was thinking about it, but at the time it seemed like private equity was going lower and lower on the uh, price spectrum and they were buying higher and higher uh, prices relative to intrinsic value. So my thinking at that time was that if I do a traditional search fund, uh, two things I don't like. One, I just might not find a business, right? Or I might feel pressured to buy a business at a price where it does not make sense um, to do, or it's very a very risky proposition. Um, two, I have to, if I'm doing a traditional search fund and raising money for investors, maybe it's possible, but everyone I've talked to uh, is not interested, I think rightly so, in investing in somebody who just wants to have a very narrow geographic area. And like you said, where you know you have to buy a business of a certain scale because you have investors, right? You can't have, you know, raise uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollars from investors uh, and then you know have from like ten people and then go buy a business that costs you know five hundred thousand dollars. It just won't make uh, won't make sense. Um, so I wanted to kind of have some confidence I'd be able to buy a business, be able to get a fair price um, and be able to stay in a particular geographic region. Um, and that's why I ended up doing like uh, self-funded. I mean, even if I wanted to do a search and say, because I, I thought about this in business school, 
probably naively, I'm like, oh, you know, I'd be okay with living in Boston or New York or DC or Miami or, you know, any of these major cities or Chicago. Um, but that probably would not work either because there are a lot of people who want to do that. Um, and it's just too restrictive. So you went the self-funded route, then how, where did you get the money? How did you finance the acquisition? Tell us about the deal structure. Uh, the deal structure is pretty simple. I paid cash. You're, I think you're my first guest to have done that. Yeah, people were so asking. Like, well, yeah, I just paid out of my own cash. I, I had I had some some savings. I had some. Uh, a, I sold a small amount of equity. I don't really like to to sell stocks uh, at all, but I you know I topped it out with a little bit of that. But I just bought it myself in cash. And mm-hmm. people were saying, "Well, your returns would be better if you bought it, you know, with debt." Um, and and for one, uh, the SBA seven A loan was not accessible to me uh, at a lower price point. I'd have to buy it. A more expensive business to get an SBA 7A loan. Um, what, why? To, what is the threshold? T- can you tell me more specifics around that? So I've been told, I think there are two tests. And I think one of them is uh, the like a, like per, like net liquidity, personal liquidity test, where is if you have enough stocks uh, and cash, right, for example, um, that you could cover the acquisition with that, you pretty much can't get an SBA loan for that amount. And which makes sense when you think that the, well, the government is only trying to back uh, these loans and effectively subsidize them because they want to encourage people who would not otherwise be able to buy these businesses um, to buy those businesses. So like, if you want to buy a business that was like, if you had a million dollars in cash, you want to buy a million dollar business, you know, you can't get an SBA loan. You have to either you know, lend against your wealth, which is, or your stocks, which is expensive or real estate, if you have it, um, or you have to go find a business where you can take out like a, you know, $5 million SBA loan or $2 million SBA loan. Okay. And so what, give us a sense of the size of DiMartino revenues, profit margins, if you, anything you can share. Yeah, sure. I mean, about a million and a half in, uh, in revenue, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, goes up and down, but between a million and a half, two million. Uh, makes about three hundred thousand, call it in in cash flow, SDE or EBITDA. Um, I bought it for about three times uh, cash flow. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know this is not a massive business, um, but it is one that's steadily profitable, uh, and I think I got it at a very very fair price. Excellent. And your due diligence. What was? Give us two or three things that you're really looking for, or, or some would-be plumbing business buyer out there. What are kind of the top two or three things to to look for? Well, I think the first thing to look for is make sure that the PPP loan that they got is not counted as revenue. And if they argue <laughs> with you on it, uh, you know, walk away. That's that's a big one. Um, you saw that? Oh yeah, I've seen that. Right, I've 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 seen that. That's you know, some, uh, more sometimes just like not deliberately, and they're they like okay, we'll remove that. But sometimes they they insist that it, it's revenue, and it's you know it's a mess because that's pure profit if you book it as revenue. Uh, so the uh, I I look for businesses that had a servicing component. That was like the first big thing. Right? right. Is there a servicing component? Um, the second thing is, do they have a reasonably good reputation? And there weren't a ton of businesses that had like you know, three reviews on, on Google and, or, and they're all one star. Um, but I want to see some evidence that it was, uh, uh, had a reasonably good reputation. I mean, you know, I didn't get the opportunity to do diligence, a bunch of different plumbing companies. I entered due diligence on this one 
acquisition that's the one I ultimately bought because for everything else I was looking at, there were other reasons why the deal went through before we even entered the due diligence phase. So is that to say that just like you were saying about HVAC, that it was just too competitive, that plumbing was, I mean, you were successful. So ultimately it wasn't yeah. too competitive, but it was competitive. Yeah, it was, it was competitive enough. And, and you had, uh, and you also had sellers who um, did all sorts of stuff. You know, one seller had a business um, outside of the state of Florida and they were trying to sell. Uh, they had, they bought a plumbing business a couple of years ago and they decided that, you know, one of their, one brother decided he didn't want to go uh, to Florida. So they had to get, because he was going to live in Florida. That's why they bought this other plumbing business. Um, and then they reneged on that. So the broker dropped them after we had, you know, kind of negotiated a bunch and you have uh, some brokers. I don't know if it's the broker. I don't know if it's the seller um, have unrealistic views of what their financials are. Right. So they just don't want to, it's not even, I don't even know if they have any other buyers. Right. But they just refuse will refuse your offer uh, if it doesn't match up to whatever idea they have of what their business should be worth. So you're now, uh, uh, you, you bought it on, you closed on July 13th. So less than a month and a half into ownership. And yeah. from other people that I've spoken to in your shoes, or even a few, a few months, more months into their acquisition as new owners, talk about how, just how difficult the transition is. How's it been going? We're still here. All my staff, uh, everyone's here. <laughs> so that's good. We still have customers. The construction jobs are still going. We're still getting service calls. So, you know, considering all that, uh, I think we're in pretty good shape. Um, but it's still been hectic uh, for me. I, I think uh, a lot of the staff, uh, you know, it, I think it was, it's shocking to hear that the company's being sold, especially in a small business. Um, and I think that that, might, that was tough, especially initially until they really knew me. Um, and, you know, as they're, they're getting to know me, I think that's calming down, but, um, asset sales are, uh, are a pain. Uh, you know, that's the typical thing you do in acquisitions of this size, but there is so much stuff that you have to do like little tiny things that are not related to operations, um, in any way or customers that, you know, can take forever. And I think you and I were talking about this earlier, the, the phone thing, right? Like just transferring the phone number, uh, we're, you know, five weeks in. And it's still, you know, ongoing. And that's a dependency for me to say, if I want to hire any virtual assistants uh, to help handle calls, right? Can't do that. If I want to integrate with uh, software, we, you know, we're onboarding with Service Titan. Um, I can't do that until that's complete. Cars, right? You have to retitle everything. Uh, you know, it's just the, the, you have issues where licenses could get suspended for the cars because the state doesn't have everything updated yet. And you're still waiting on, you know, a title to come back because you have to, you, you paid off the uh, lien on the car. Um, so that's been, you know, a huge, huge issue uh, for me. And it's been uh, hard to kind of get out from under so I can go focus on uh, obviously fires within the business, but also setting up this, the systems and hiring the people to prevent those fires. And so on that point, the, the value that you envisioned adding to this business, what is it? Is it scale? Is it just hiring more people and, and growing it? Or are there particular systems that you saw that you knew you could immediately come in there as low-hanging fruit and just in, improve the value? Talk to me about what, what's on your list of, of to-do items. So the, there, there are, I think, a lot of low-hanging fruit. 
low-ish hanging fruit. It's not like super easy to do that can improve the business, that can improve the business, you know, stuff like online scheduling, um, having great coverage, even just 24 hour coverage for uh, phone calls, even if you don't actually have 24 hour service, um, being able to integrate service Titan, I think is huge, like, especially for the customer experience and collecting sometimes and having you know, a bunch of data for what happened on prior calls, uh, for showing customers photos of you know, different options they might have, um, rewrapping vans, organizing vans, having an inventory system with barcoding, um, hiring somebody to manage the shop. So they sign out stuff because right now uh, stuff runs out. You might lose, you know, some pipe fitting. Uh, you might, somebody might grab the, the whole bag. And yesterday you had 32 of the, uh, the elbows of you know, copper three quarter inch elbows. And today you have two. Um, and then they have to run to the supply house all the time uh, to do that. So there's a lot of, of low-hanging fruit that the inventory is, I think, a larger project. Integrating Service Titan is a larger project. Um, but there's a lot that could be done that would ultimately improve profitability, make customers happier, make our techs happier. Um, and fundamentally, that's why I, besides just being interested in plumbing and liking the economics, that's why I decided to go into this, this industry is that I have a whole list of things that we could be doing. Um, to improve the business. These things all sound like things that you've observed as you've been the new owner. Did or did you observe them from the outside? Uh, a little bit of both, right? Like, I mean, I I the inventory thing, um, I didn't really know about until I got here and I had, you know, techs uh, become upset when they you know showed up one day and they're like, well, why don't we have, you know, these pipes and why don't we have these parts? Like, you know, I and I I didn't know how to order, you know, some of these parts, like, if, you know, a Mickey to me sounds like, I think it is uh, the name for a, a drug, um, but it's like <laughs> a, you know, a pipe suspension clip. Um, so, you know, I got this list, I didn't even know how to order it. And I was taking me hours to figure it out. And eventually I kind of did. Um, so a lot of it was, was being in the business uh, was for solving those kind of operational problems. Um, the stuff like, you know, just wrapping a truck or revamping a web website or doing online scheduling or, um, having automated text messages uh, when technicians are on their way, you know, 30 minutes or an hour before. That I all knew from kind of research before, from following these, you know, great guys on Twitter and listening to the, uh, these podcasts. I'm like, okay, that's, you know, that's obvious. You see a van that's beat up, right, versus a van that's wrapped. Uh, I think you wrap the vans, you're going you're gonna to do pretty well. And that's going to be true for any kind of any plumbing business you buy, unless their vans are clean and wrapped already. There's this this excitement around buying small businesses, just as you've done. Mm -hmm. On paper, it looks really good. The, the multiples are low, meaning they're basically um, more affordable than a digital business or other other places that you might spend a significant amount of money. And then there's there are the, the detractors, people actually who are doing it, practitioners of this, people who've done it multiple times and are seeing all this excited chatter on Twitter about buying a small business and are saying, hey, wait a second, you have no idea how difficult this is. This is so, so hard. So you're you know, less, than, less than 45 days into this, but uh, that's you know, a, lot, a lot more days into it than most people will ever get to. What's your thought so far on that debate? So I think both are true. Uh, I think that it's, it, it is a good way, uh, at least in the current kind of world uh, where asset prices of all sorts are very expensive, right? I think you know, buying a small business is a, a good way to build wealth, um, but I think it's also incredibly difficult. 
uh, it can be, uh, you know, it's a slog. I drive 70 miles. Um, you know, it takes me about an hour, 20 minutes without traffic to get to the office. So, you know, it, and I, why do I do that? Well, I love this business and, uh, and this is the one I could find and okay, it's you know, not the end of the world to do it. So it's a slog, right? And you're dealing with, with, uh, you know, personal problems for, of employees and people, you know, all sorts of stuff happening with them and, and their concerns and their worries. Um, you're trying to not run out of money. You're trying to make sure your customers are happy. And, you know, the 80, 20 rule applies there where you're spending 80% of your time on, you know, these 20, you know, probably like 5% of customers who are, you know, just really, you, you can't please them and they, they want, you know, everything for free. Um, well, and they, and some, in a lot of cases, you know, you tell them one thing and then they, and they're like, oh yeah, go ahead and do it. And you say, it's going to break, it breaks. And then they're very angry at you and write you letters and threaten, threaten you with negative reviews. Um, so it's very, extremely, extremely difficult. I think, you know, I think a lot of people appreciate the difficulty. I mean, maybe you don't know until you actually, you know, are in the business, just how difficult it is. Um, but I think a lot of people rationally who are interested in buying a small business but haven't, they understand the difficulty. Um, I think that the risk uh, of is maybe less appreciated, right? Like, especially with you know levering up a bit. Um, I think that there is could be some risk there, but uh, you know, there's no reason why it can't be both simultaneously difficult and painful and have a, a high probability of of success if you. Um, are frank with yourself about what your capabilities are and you choose a business that's, you know, it's got warts, but it, it'll, it'll work. And so talking to these people out there who are considering buying a business, any advice for them or, or advice to yourself of, for, of yourself of three months or six or 12 months ago, anything maybe um, you did wrong, do you think, or wasted time on or? Well, I think I, I waste a lot of time worrying and I still do that, but I think that's more of a personality trait than anything else. I'm you always working pretty on, relaxed, Charles. I got to say for a guy who just bought a business. All a facade. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, well, I, you try to try to look relaxed and then you'll feel uh, maybe feel more relaxed, but maybe worry a little bit less about like what happens if I don't find a business. Um, you know, is that going to be a big deal? No, I'll, you know, find something else to do. Um, I wish I and this, I guess, is not necessarily something that's great for every single person um, who's interested in buying a business, but I wish I had actually started interviewing people um, early on. Like, you know, times like right now, I kind of wish I had a partner. And if you ask my parents, you know, my dad's uh, had been in business for many years and he's always like, no, never, he's got a partner who's great, by the way. Like his, my dad's success and his partner's success, are, a lot of it has to do with finding a partner. My dad's always like, "Yo, don't get a partner." I've had so many partners; it's all been bad. Um, and I've had partners, and I've had you know good partners. I've had the experience of, of not so good partners. Um, but I wish I just had somebody else there in addition to kind of you know the office manager that that came with the business, just handle a bunch of other stuff that like no you know one person uh, or two people can handle. So I wish I maybe pre-hired, which I've heard of some people doing. Like, I wish I took some of the capital I used to buy the business and especially maybe, you know, as soon as it was clear that due diligence was going to begin, I wish I did two things. I wish I maybe extended the closing period, right? Or had like a special kind of contract that lets me set up some stuff as we close. So it's not all at once, right? Um, like set up 
systems or transition some stuff over. Um, and I wish I had maybe hired somebody to be like operations uh, focused and just kind of be not a sidekick, but like somebody who could, I could be like, okay, Hey, I need you to, to do all this stuff with setting up a bank account or something like that. But this isn't a partner. This isn't an equity partner. This is a, a right-hand man, a salaried right-hand man. That, yeah, that would have been, I think, a great idea to, to spend. You're, yeah, you're risking that, you know, you have to pay this person's salary without any revenue for a little while. Um, but I think that that might have been very worthwhile. Uh, I, I don't think I, I say I would want a partner because it's such a small business. Um, I mean, certainly for the right partner, that would have been great, but that's just theoretical. Um, but yes, having, a, having pre-hires not just an ops manager, but even somebody like to answer, you know, do customer service or something, you know, ready to go uh, would be amazing. Um, and we're techs that we I'd want to add early on, even making the contact and not hiring them immediately. That could be huge. And that's for the next acquisition I make, uh, you know, down the line, I'm almost certainly going to be pre-hiring some people. Thank you for the segue. So you do see more of these in your future. I do. I think I'm a, you know, I, I want to have a little mini conglomerate. Um, somebody on Twitter was making fun of calling stuff, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway of X. Yeah. And I responded, I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, I, I like, well, I love Berkshire Hathaway, but I, I use like the Teledyne of X, uh, but nobody knows te uh, Teledyne and uh, Henry Singleton. Um, but yeah, I see more acquisitions, especially in the home services space. I, I want to grow this business and acquire others. And I want to be a you know, collector of these businesses and have my own little little collection of, of businesses. How are you deciding when number two acquisition will, will kick off? Or am I putting, am I getting ahead of myself? And right now you're just figuring this one out and you'll, you'll just, you'll, you'll know it when you feel like things have stabilized for a good number of months. Uh, I think it's going to have to be things, things stabilizing for a good number of months before I, I, uh, I do that, but you know, Hey, I've heard people doing it 12 to 18 months in. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's entirely unrealistic uh, to do, uh, especially if you kind of from the get go start about like start working on ways to make yourself non-critical to the business, right? Like try, like right now, all I'm trying to do is make it so that I have other people who can handle some of the tasks I would otherwise be doing. So that every time I do a task, I do something, um, I'm doing something that's incremental to the business versus something that the business needs to have to operate. Um, so you know, hopefully 12 to 18 months uh, would be the next one, but I don't, I'm not on any timetable. Uh, if this business is growing and going gangbusters and I, I have to be involved in that, uh, amazing. If the everything's on fire, uh, you know, well, I'm not happy everything's on fire, but I got to go uh, put those fires out. And recognizing that this will probably be answered 12 or 18 months from now or more, do you envision it being another plumbing company? So assembling a, a, a portfolio of plumbing companies specifically, or it could be a different in a different industry. Yeah, it could be in a different industry. Another plumbing company would be would be fine, but uh, stuff that's adjacent to plumbing uh, or plumbing itself, I think, is ideal, right? Like HVAC is a, is an obvious one, um, and I always forget what the kind of suggested ratio is of of plumbing text to HVAC text, but there's a lot of you know relationship between the two. Um, other, you know, other home services could be a thing. Like I, I sometimes wonder if like fire, uh, sprinkler work, uh, you know, uses pipes, uses water it might be totally different. I looked at one company that in that industry, um, that's something that, you know, I'm interested in, but, uh, there's a whole bunch of other little tiny things you don't even, you know, think about that much. And I'm like, 
like generator service is a huge problem, I think, for everyone here in Florida. And there are some companies, I won't name them, uh, but they claim to kind of do everything with generators and they don't. Uh, and there's, you know, homeowners just going back and forth between like, oh, plumbers hook up the gas for generators, right? Say one, the generator company would say it's the plumber, the plumber goes, it's, you know, it's the generator company. They need some electrician or some engine tech, I guess, to do it. Um, so stuff like that is also interesting where I, I hear just like disappointment across the board with uh, how uh, homeowners are receiving service. So I think the the home services space is, is where I'd stay within, but I guess com- commercial stuff to do with buildings, you know, that, that kind of thing. You mentioned Nick Hashka earlier. Uh, Nick yeah. has been on the, the podcast and his, one of his sort of philosophical approaches to SMB acquisition is to start small. So the anti-search fund. And, yeah. and so you, you can probably just, there are a variety of, there are a variety of benefits to starting small, which um, people can go listen to that podcast. I recommend that they do. But one of the things, it, you know, just kind of like listening to you talk is you just get into the game faster. And by being in the game, you see other opportunities like you're talking about. I mean, all, all these little problems in the world are revealing themselves to you as you are, as you're, as you're getting up to speed in your own new plumbing business. And so I, I think that like, you know, there's this danger with a search fund of that you're looking for a lot of revenue in one fell swoop, but you can still get to that revenue incrementally by buying a smaller business, learning some of the problems, learning some of the, you know, the things that confront homeowners or business owners in your, in your geography and maybe buying an adjacent business and, and still getting to that revenue number, but doing it incrementally and learning along the way and, and building your own skills as a manager, as an owner, as a business acquirer along the way. That seems much more appealing to me personally, not making uni- a universal assertion here, but uh, I definitely see where he's coming from. And it sounds like that's kind of the path that you're on. Well, I was, uh, I was obviously strongly influenced by Nick Hashka. I think he had one interview where it was called starting small uh, right. or something along those lines. Right. So no, that was, that was like a, a, a huge turning point for me in my quest to buy a small business. And I mean, you know, if I ever, if I have any success at some point, like, you know, I, I, my parents obviously are a huge thing, but, but you know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, I have to throw a bone to you, but like, it's, you know, we guys like Nick Hoshka and, and Rich Jordan and John Wilson and kind of the, the slew of other people who kind of, gave their advice uh, publicly uh, that I'd have to say, you know, hey, that, that, that's, that changed my thing because I didn't come up with that on my own. Um, but yeah, I think starting small um, makes it possible that you can acquire a business uh, at all at a fair price. Right. Um, nothing wrong with traditional search with the, you know, buying the kind of larger business. Um, but, you know, it might be a lot harder today than it was 15 years ago. And that might change kind of the uh, the risk adjusted uh, uh, amount of money you'll make out of it, uh, if any. Um, so, yeah, I think small is a good place. And the, harder the and harder today because private equity has continued to look for smaller and smaller companies for opportunities. So you're competing with that much more other search funders. Search fund the model itself has become more popular, but also private equity at this point. I I think so. I, I'm not. I haven't been in private equity. Uh, you know, I don't know for a fact that private equity is going all the way down to the level search search funds are at. I know private equity, or believe they have, been trending downwards. Um, the number of searchers are probably still more businesses 
the number of searchers who are looking for businesses of a, of a larger size um, might not really be affecting the prices. But I think that what's been happening in the economy over the past uh, few years and just that the rush of money into private equity in general, I think just kind of forces up um, some of the prices relative to really the fundamental value of a lot of these companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just, you know, that's just kind of a broad sweeping statement, right? Like yeah. I, there, I don't have any data to back that up really. Um, but, you know, you see with like stuff like the stock market where prices are very, very high relative to kind of any measure of earnings um, or earnings power, really. Uh, same thing with, with real estate, right? Like you're lucky if you can get like a, you know, four percent uh cap rate so kind of anything you do in real estate has to be value add uh because everyone's just throwing their money at this thing because there's so much cash lying around um so i think starting small is kind of like where you're uh forced to be at right now um the the detractors say it's buying a job they say it's you're exactly in it you're you're paying a lot of money for a job and uh you get all this stress of uh, being a business owner and uh, and all of the uh, money of being a employee, so it's it's really not great. And you know, right now it feels that I am working in. I did buy myself a job right now, but that's not forever. Uh, if you can set up the systems and hire the folks to build your bench to grow the business, then I think you're can move it out of buying a job but it's it's a difference between what it can be like in a traditional search fund yes you're trying to to grow these larger businesses uh and you're you know you're going to sell it in the future trying to improve it and all that but you care a lot about what the business is today with these smaller businesses it's fine if there're a lot more warts on it because you can make such huge changes because you're starting at a smaller base I also think that even if it, you are buying a job and even if that job is stressful, I mean, if you're buying a business with cash flow of two, three, four hundred thousand dollars and you're able to take home a large percentage of that, so low, you know, a, a, a very healthy six figure salary, that's doing a lot better than most of America. Um, so, so strictly from that perspective, yeah, you could probably earn that if you're on a in, a in a corporate setting and you've been at it for a number of years and that's your career and probably with more security and, and it's probably cushier. But, and so that's great. And that is in fact, what most people, how more most people would prefer to earn a quarter million dollars a year. But a lot of people want to be self-employed. They don't want a boss. They want to build something for themselves. So buying a job, it's not just a job. It's also, they're an entrepreneur now. And that, that's been, that's been their, goal all along, or that is, that has been a goal. And then when you add to that, so that's just kind of like scratching the entrepreneurial itch, it provides that value. But when you add to that, all of the, the, like the the financial argument for it, that within three or four years, you, you know, or depending on how you finance it, you can own this business outright, this asset that that you can then maybe sell yourself one day and and have a, a, a big liquidity event, liquidity event for yourself. Then there's this whole other layer that kind of, you know, that might get a more financially oriented person excited. So there's, there's another, on, an, it, it's interesting and compelling on a number of different tracks, but certainly 
you got to expect to work in a business. This is not passive income or even really an investment. This is something where you're, you are buying yourself a job as an entrepreneur, but it's a great path for entrepreneurship if, if, if you don't have that idea uh, that you want to go start, but you know you want to be you know, betting on yourself. Yeah. And I think that there's just a little bit less competition here. Uh, that too. That That's, I think, a big a big deal. Like I was saying earlier with, hey, I want to compete with the guys who's, you know, was a shuttle astronaut. In right. this, at the smaller end of the spectrum, yes, there are tons of other plumbing companies. However, there's also a lot of business for plumbing and there are dynamics in the market that mean it's not easy for a plumber in Tampa to compete with me. There's a geographic limit moat. to stuff, yeah. a, a moat rather. I'm, th- I'm trying to think of the word. What's the moat? Uh, the best moats, of course, are, the, are I think, uh, aggregates companies like concrete or, or that kind of stuff uh, where they physically, it's so expensive to transport this stuff that if you plop one of these facilities somewhere for like 50 miles, you've got a monopoly because if anyone else enters, you both don't make any money. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so you're just, you just sit there and collect rent checks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Charles, this was great. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on, on all things plumbing. I had been really curious. I've been following it on Twitter, but like I said, I hadn't had a conversation directly with somebody. Congratulations on your first five-ish weeks. And how can people reach you if they want to ask you questions, follow up? My Twitter is seems to be the thing everyone uses on their podcast. So capitalist Chuck, I'm usually Chuck the capitalist, but that's taken. So capitalist Chuck is on Twitter. I have a LinkedIn, Charles Barr. You can add me there, send me a message. Uh, love to talk to folks. If I don't have time or I don't respond to you, it's not because I hate you. It's probably because I'm busy running around in my plumbing business. Fair enough. Charles, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Will. It's been a pleasure.